Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Storied Podcast. We've been gone for a little bit um, for various reasons, but today we're back to talk about a very important topic. Uh, we need to stop, Ryan, I think you agree, we need to stop the trophy runners. The trophy runners are going out and they're rooting the sport of running. They're just blood doping. They're going out there for the prizes. It's all a money thing. They're ruining the integrity of the sport, and we just need to stop trophies. And there's going to be no placement in running anymore, no times even. You just sign up, run, and that's really what you need to do it for. We need to make laws against this trophy running thing. It's gotten out of hand. Ban trophy hunting. Or running. Or running. Run. Sorry, sorry. See, Dang. so now, Spoiler. if you think that sounds a little bit off the wall, it might be, but... We're going to talk today about trophy hunting, which is a hot topic, and I think it's really misunderstood, and we're going to maybe delve into a little bit of running parallels to kind of try to explain things to people who might not really understand where we're coming from, but um, it's, it's a really important thing that we decided we wanted to talk about, and that's kind of why we've been on a little bit of a break, is we wanted to do this episode, but it needs some uh, prep time. Um, so we're going to get into that, and it's going to be... a uh, a juicy conversation here and we're still going to do some stories like we always do but it's a little bit different format we got some pre-recorded stories that go along with some discussion items so hopefully you guys enjoy this and uh get some of our perspective on trophy hunting and um hopefully enjoy it a little bit too just uh entertainment wise with some of these stories but before we get into it since we've been on so long uh ryan what what have you been up to lately well, um, we just been this last weekend, really, too. Um, I've been looking through the freezer and trying to whittle things down and process them up so I can consume them even easily or more easy, I guess. And so me and uh, my fiance, we sat in our garage and did some uh, canning of some uh, deer meat, which was pretty nice and eventful i looked over to her we were both sitting in the garage like two old people and i'm like when you bought this house did you think you were going to be just sitting in here canning venison (laughs) she's like if you would have told me that there'd be like there's no way in hex but been doing that um going through the freezer getting all that organized um for the next season and then doing a little hiking and some scouting like i always always try to do and 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 doing that, getting ready for the next season, staying active too, doing a little running like we just talked about, just for my health, well being, not really for a race or anything. But how about you, Ruben? What you been up to? I've been um really bemoaning the lack of winter. Uh, th- this has been the worst winter really? I I can remember. Period. I mean, like definitely uh, since I moved to Montana, the this is the fourth winter now that uh, I've gone through and it is de- by far the le- least amount of snow, the warmest temperatures. And I mean, that's not just me saying that most of our snowpack is at record lows. Most of the United States really is. I was going to say up here in Minnesota too. We were on the deck for the first part of that cannon meet. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's February 3rd and we're sitting outside. I was taking a nap in the sun. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, but as I was saying, it's not just Montana. I can say too, that it's my whole upbringing. i never saw this back in the Midwest where in the North woods of Wisconsin, when I was back around new years, um, 
half of the lakes you couldn't fish and there was zero snow on the ground. Uh, so yeah, pretty scary, pretty, yeah, it's going to be real interesting to see how it pans out and what hopefully moisture comes in the spring, um, and summer. But for us in Montana, that really doesn't help a whole bunch if you don't have that snowpack to slowly release throughout the summer months. So yeah, I've been kind of, uh, just, I did ski two weeks ago on some really bony, terrible runs that were only a couple of runs open where I went and I guarantee you now they're just totally closed, which is unheard of. Um, and then uh, other than that, I've been just kind of jogging and ice fishing because you can still do that, but ice fishing isn't that great. And um, yeah, so not much. I started reading. I started reading a lot. That's how bad the winter is. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, I have been uh, sticking to my cooking schedule, though, and um, that's also something fun to do when there's nothing outside that's uh, very entertaining. So um, let's talk about some meals. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, we had our, at, at work now, so we always work during this. We all got full-time jobs, you know? So during work, we had our annual health inspection, fish health inspection. Um, our state, um, uh, pathologist comes down and with a crew and goes through our fish and makes sure they're disease free so we can stock them throughout our lakes in Minnesota. So they were come down and I'm like, you know what? I told them last year I wanted to spoil them and make a wild game meal for them. So my cousin, I was talking to my cousin, and he said he perfected this um, wild game venison or whatever ungulate species, uh, a gyro kind of meal. So I took his took his uh, gyro recipe and I made elk gyro. I mean, gyros are usually made with lamb, I guess beef and stuff they could do, but um, usually it's turned on a spit. The animal, I guess, Euro in Greek means turn. Um, but we're going to do our own little spin on this and we're going to kind of make it a, a meatloaf. So I, I mixed it with probably about 25% pork. I know he said 50, 50 on it. And I don't usually like to put too much, um, domestic game into the wild game, but so I mixed it together and then seasoned it, which the list of seasoning is crazy. So it's salt, basil, oregano, thyme, garlic powder, dill, morjam, pepper, parsley, rosemary, cinnamon, nutmeg, and then red pepper flakes. So you got a big list of seasonings you add in, and then you add in a little water, and then you add a little nonfat dried milk in, and you mix all that up. And what I like to do with any of those seasonings is just to let it sit overnight to try to really get that soaked into the meat so it's kind of evenly seasoned across the board and so let it overnight took it out made it into kind of a meatloaf in a 9 by 13 and uh, put it in the oven at 350 for a few hours until the internal temperature was about 150 pulled it out it was still cold at that time I put it outside Um, hopefully no dogs in anybody's neighborhood or you got to watch out for animals but no nothing around (laughs) So I let it for a few hours and I put it on the slicer, sliced it thin and then brought all the fixing for the whole gang at the, at the hatchery. And we had uh elk euros, little tzatziki sauce on there and sign me up. That's, that's a killer recipe. Thank you. Shout out to my cousin, Brandon Lee. It's a good recipe. That sounds fantastic. I actually wow. had a little bit of a Greek salad last night. I didn't make it. I just got it with some pizza. It was pretty good. 
Yeah. That that would have been better. Uh, I would have brought you over some elk. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> had the elk hero with the Greek salad instead of the pizza, that would have been a little bit better yeah. probably. Actually, yeah, I know it would better. be. Um, well, that sounded great. Uh, so I also cooked some elk. Um, when I was back in Wisconsin at my parents' place, I eyed up on their bookshelf. They had the sous chef's indigenous uh, cookbook. And so this is a cookbook that's made. I forget the author. I should have looked that up or had it on me. Um, but anyways, it's basically all of these Native American recipes that were collected and put into this book, which apparently took some investigative, you know, journalism kind of stuff because they're really hard to find considering everything that's gone on with Native Americans in the last couple hundred years. Was um, it different Native groups or one specific Native group? No, I think it's a collection across a lot of different oh, ones. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Um, and I wonder if it's that way too, because uh, I wonder how your ingredient list would be if you stuck with like people that lived in the plains or people that lived in northern Minnesota. Yes. Yeah. So like you'd have a pretty short cookbook, maybe. I don't know. Maybe not. But anyways, we looked up this recipe in there for elk. Um, and you take the shanks and basically uh, the, the big difference here are like the seasonings and uh, what you cook with is like a really big difference in these, these recipes. Uh, you know, you're not using your typical seasonings like you just mentioned and you're using different types mm -hmm. of broths and oils. Um, but basically you take this elk neck, well, I took the neck roast. Um, you're supposed to do it with a, a white tail shoulder too. You could do it bone in. I didn't have that cause I don't process my deer that way, but I took a elk, neck roast and you season it with smoked salt and crushed juniper berries smoked what's, salt what's it, smoked salt man? It, it's exactly what it sounds like it's smoked salt so oh, it's got a smoky flavor in the salt yeah it's really yeah, good that's cool yeah. it's not cheap um <laughs> and uh actually i want to look up if i can do that on my own in my smoker yeah um exactly and so uh, season it in smoked salt and crushed juniper berries. Brown it in a pan. Supposed to use sunflower seed oil, but I used bear grease, which I think is still pretty, pretty indigenous. For you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so then I put that on the side. And then what you do is you put uh, half a pound of mushrooms, which are supposed to be wild pick mushrooms, but I just got mushrooms from the store. A diced up shallot, which is supposed to be wild onion. But once again, it's winter in Montana. Um, and then what else did we put in there? And then a stock, which they were talking about making a vegetable stock. I just use my Turkey stock from, you know, Thanksgiving wild Turkey. So like all these things are a little bit different than what they said, but they're still being me. They're still like animals I sourced from the land here. Um, mm -hmm. and basically you just, you know, uh, fry those or, uh, cook them up in that brine until it, or, uh, you know, they start to brown and, and get soft and then you just throw it in a slow cook the whole thing for as long as it takes to break down you know neck collagen and that ended yeah. up being really really good uh oh and you serve it on wild rice then and actually the thing that i did do with the wild rice that was different is i didn't use water to cook it i used also the turkey brine to cook the wild rice so you don't even need to oh, season really? it it just is yeah. like tastes yeah. like turkey brine you know seasoned nice um so yeah uh i had it with maddie she thought it was great um, and it just like, you know, your typical pull apart, slow cook, uh, roast, but it has a way different pl flavor profile. 
which is mm-hmm. a little bit like I would describe it as less salty than what we normally cook and more aromatic. There's more like juniper in there. Oh, and you and in the slow cooker, you also throw a sage sprig in there. So there's sage in there. And then it's on yeah. top of that wild rice. And it's just like a really good hearty meal with a lot of, uh, I don't know, it just tastes healthy and like clean. There's not like all the like oils and salts you normally put in stuff. Um, and I still have some leftover, so I'm going to have that later tonight. So that's what uh, that's what we cooked. Um, Pretty much tastes like the land, you know, you got it from. I was going to say it. Good, it tastes good, sustainable it probably food tastes like got, North America yeah. before uh, European uh, food influence, you know? Yep, exactly. Exactly. So, so yeah, um, all that was supposed to be, and like I said, attempted to be cooked with things sourced from, you know, the land around here. That kind of gets into what we're going to start talking about here with the trophy hunting stuff. Um, we're going to get to the trophy part of it, but we want to set the stage before we jump into that, because I think a lot of times people immediately run to trophy hunting and this is what that is. And this is good or bad things about it. And I think we need to build up to that because that seems to Ryan and I to be like, kind of like the top icing layer on the cake when you have all this other stuff below it, that is more important, but maybe people just look at the icing, you know? Um, So one of the reasons that we talk about what we've had to eat, like that's the way we start out our podcast. Like that's not just random. Um, I mean, it's not just random because we want to put forth every time we have a podcast that that is why we go out into the woods and hunt. That is the main reason we do it is to uh, sustain our bodies and fill our freezers with animals that we take responsibility for harvesting and that are healthy and wild and uh it's it's just part of the way we live and the and the main reason we do it is to get food so that's why we talk about these uh and we want to spread that right so we talk about these recipes and talk about how great wild game is not because we're trying to like convince people and they're eating wild game maybe we are a little bit but just spitting the facts right i mean it's good food it's really healthy food this is you know people don't depend as much on wild game as as us probably which is totally normal people have families they don't sometimes know how to cook all this meat this is a this is a lot to bite off i feel like but that's why it's nice to have our meals to make it a little more crash course to get people into wild game and if they do go out to hunt they usually do consume the meat in some form but now it can be more enjoyable for everybody you go out there and hunt it, but then you're bringing it back to your family. Your family doesn't hunt, but they're still all part of the hunt. They're a nice thing to go out there and sustain your family. It's it's yeah. clean sourced meat from yeah, the land. It, it's extremely healthy, sustainable on the scale that we're currently doing it. Um, and then, like Ryan was saying, um, we need to expand on this a lot more, Ryan. Most people yeah. eat the meat. that When they kill something, they eat the meat. Now, there's multiple reasons for that. Um but why don't we talk about an aspect of trophy hunting that people might have a misconception about, which is, Ryan, what, what would you say is the typical, what is trophy hunting to someone on the street? I, I think it probably, like years ago with the market hunting and that, like that's where it stems from, I think. People getting in their minds, like people used to go out and hunt hides 
and just waste animals and just bring back the hide and stuff. And now I think it's moved into just like head hunting. People are going out there for the biggest animal just to slap on their wall and look at me. I'm the guy. And that's not what it's about. And that's and do you illegal. think people people that think that, do you think they uh do they think the hunter eats the animal or doesn't eat the animal in that instance? Yeah, doesn't eat the animal, totally. And just like those market hunters years ago, they ate a little bit and got rid of the rest. You know, that's exactly what they believe. And and I, I think it's it's just a false misnomer that got into the culture and stuff of people that didn't know any better, you know, we're pretty, pretty, um, um, a society that's so far away from sometimes our natural resources that we just hear something, boom, we're not exposed to it. That's what we think. And that's, this is what we're here to clear up, I guess. Yeah. So let's clear that up right now. Um, (laughs) so there there's multiple reasons that that is completely false in in a wide range of instances if you were to look at the general hunting public we're going to talk specifically in this podcast about what ryan and i know and what we experience i don't want to delve too much into like africa or anything like that um even though we have themes that could be applicable but i don't know a lot of the details in in the united states we have um, wanton waste laws in every state for most species. And, and it's not even most species, it's most species that people hunt. So it's like, uh, you know, your deer, your elk, your, um, rabbits, ducks, fish, uh, p- things that have historically been used for food, bear, bears, um, cougars, all yeah. like all that. Yeah. yeah. Things that historically have been used and hunted for food, um, it is illegal to kill them and waste that food. Most of the laws say something along the lines of it's illegal to render the meat unfit for human consumption or to waste the meat. So right off the bat there, I mean, we're talking about big buck hunters, big bull hunters, all this kind of stuff that people are like trophy hunter. But every single one of those hunters is legally required to keep and use that meat. And if they don't, they're not a hunter. They're a poacher. That's not what we're talking about. Like that's someone who breaks the law. It's not, it's not trophy hunting. It's illegal. Um, and, uh, something to go along with that is I, I just recently looked this up, uh, Mark Duda of responsive management, which is a, uh, a group that administers very, um, well-respected surveys about hunting and other things. And so much so that they advise a lot of state agencies and stuff with their surveys about, uh, you know, different views on hunting conservation. 97% of respondents to the survey that they put out responded that they eat every single animal that they kill. 97%. So when you're talking about somebody who goes out and hunts, um, you know, and doesn't use the meat, I mean, you're talking about an extreme minority there. If we had 90, like 97% is a really good number for anything. If we had like 97% of people stopped texting and driving, do you know how many fewer car crashes there would be? If we had 97% of people do their taxes correctly and not be shady about things and try to, you know, try to maneuver around the government like that, you know how many fewer audits there'd have to be? If we had 97% of you know, pretty much anything that we think about trying to regulate, if we had 97% compliance, that's really good. That's very high. So 
that's just putting numbers to that, you know, because I could say, oh, most hunters eat what they kill. And you'd be like, oh, yeah, whatever. But like 97 percent. And that's that's not even saying that three percent of people like poach and waste meat because there are there are oftentimes are people that go on a hunt and then donate their meat. So maybe somebody either doesn't like deer or is allergic to deer or something like that. And they still hunt them and then they donate it to a food bank or um, a homeless shelter which we can get into the weeds on that, but like that, the animal is still going to use. Right. So mm-hmm. that we just, that's one thing to clear up there is that, um, the, the scale of what people might think is, you know, hunters that kill things and don't eat them, uh, is minuscule in, in the United States as it is, as we know it right now. Um, I think one, I don't know. I don't know if this is getting off topic, but like one thing that's cool of like, a lot of these rural areas and we grew up in central Wisconsin or Wisconsin area, the upper Midwest. It's like these Polish people and, you know, these, you're talking these indigenous, um, um, uh, recipes and stuff, all these people, they lived years ago off of this. And it's really just translated even to us. That's how I learned how to cook and eat. And this is what we learned how to hunt because we live off of these animals too. But yeah, I mean, so it's complicated. There's multiple, multiple facets to this, which is why we're trying to go through this in some sort of order here and try to explain things. But I think that's a common misnomer, uh, to trophy hunting is that like that, I would think like you said, Ryan, that most people I would walk up down the street and ask them, you know, explain trophy hunting. And like, why do you think trophy is bad? Oh, because they're just hunting for the head and don't use the meat. Okay. Well, the whole don't use the meat kind of thing is really not true. I mean, there's a very specific instances where that is allowed for certain things. But I mean, like I just said, 97% like people use the meat. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's move on from that. Um, why for trophy hunting, why do people want to get rid of it? What, like what, what do, what's another thing that people might think of with like shooting big or quote unquote rare animals? Why, why do people not like that? Why do you think Ryan? Yeah, animals are not going to be on the landscape. We won't have them anymore if all these hunters are just killing everything. There's just not going to be anything on the landscape like years ago, I guess. You know, that's why the big conservation push has has been. But I think it's all old information that we assume now, and it's maybe just ingrained into people that it's like hunting's bad. And years ago, they were not responsible. That's why you have have things that yeah uh, you know conservation wise so, that has stepped into place i think it's kind of weird too because um it kind of gets wrapped up with that oh people are just hunting for the head and the glory of it and then they're also saying at the same time that that harms animal populations which we're not saying that hunting can't or hasn't ever harmed animal populations but specifically hunting bigger, older animals would be a hard sell to me having a degree in wildlife and biology and fisheries um, as a reason that animals are going to disappear from the landscape. Because uh, one of the reasons that people hunt larger animals is conservation-minded. In fact, a lot of it stems from the Boone and Crockett Club, which was formed you know, 100-plus years ago, Teddy Roosevelt and others, which actually, yeah. yeah, which actually well, 140 years ago, actually, yeah. <laughs> um, puts, puts numeric measurements to antlers of each species. And the reason they were doing that back then is, uh, twofold. Like 
one, an older animal is going to reproduce more and live longer in the landscape. So as far as rebounding animal populations as when this was put into, uh, you know, when the Boone and Crockett club was formed at that time, we did have a serious issue with wildlife disappearing. One way to help solve that is to, um, get rid of market hunting, which they yes. did, you know, I mean, yeah. not the Boone and Crockett club specifically, but in the next few decades after that market hunting was made illegal, but, the common man, common hunter, still can have an impact by going out and just shooting whatever they can for meat, right? So we had a lot of meat hunters on the landscape. Putting an incentive to shoot older deer, which bigger deer are older, that's a pretty good you know, one-to-one relationship. Is You're going to have an older deer if it's larger than the other ones because it has time to grow and mature. Having people wait for a larger deer allows more deer to grow up through those two, three, four-year-old stages of their life and reproduce multiple times. And that does increase animal populations. So when people are like, it's going to harm an animal population because all these people are out there trophy hunting, trying to shoot these big specimens, uh, that's really not true. Because if you do it at the, you know the correct level, which a lot of these state agencies and hunting units are very scrutinized to see what is sustainable take. The trophy hunting actually increases the amount of different age classes on the landscape and in turn, the amount of animals, because you're waiting to harvest this top tier and letting all those other ones grow. So that, that really doesn't hold any water, that argument. And then also, um, aside from the age class thing, uh, the Boone and Crockett club is measuring, horns, skulls, things of that nature, the biggest specimens and people once again be like, oh, that's because you want to be big and bad and show off. Well, no. Um, If you're looking at the health of an animal population, it is measured by like, what can that animal attain, right? Specifically with like deer or elk, antlers are a sexual organ and they don't need antlers to survive. So if they have a harsh environment something is hurting that population, they're going to put energy into their body and survival more than their antlers. And their antlers aren't going to be as big. But if there's a habitat where they do have long lived lives and they have a lot of resources, they put a lot more energy into those antlers to grow them. And so measuring and keeping track of how big are the antlers of these animals in this state or this mountain range over time, you can see how it ebbs and flows and see when the population is healthier or not as healthy because that biggest buck is going to be the best representation of what an animal can achieve there. So that doesn't really hold any water water either is if like you're, if you're going out and trying to hunt a large deer, mind you, we are talking about wild free range deer. We are not talking about high fence operations here. If you're hunting, (laughs) yeah. If you're hunting a deer on a landscape that is completely wild and you're going after the bigger ones, you're hunting a population of animals. That's the healthiest compared to other ones around. Mm-hmm. So if you're out there, the the trophy hunting, those three things we just talked about, waste meat, you know, only shoot older deer or only shoot bigger deer, which is going to harm the population. I guess it's two things, but three answers to it. One, the meat thing we already went over. That's illegal. And most people, like the vast majority of people use what they kill. And the other thing is that an older deer allows younger deer to grow up to older age classes and a bigger deer represents a healthier deer population. And that, that can be said for bears that can be said for lions that can be said for any of these animal populations. Right. So 
yeah, I mean, I think that um, that kind of puts that a little bit to rest as far as the nuts and bolts of it, like conservation wise. And if people are using these animals, like, yes, that those things are not occurring the way people think of trophy hunting, right? Um, I think it's developed too. you know, that was kind of the foundation of how trophy hunting and hunting has developed through like the Boone and Crockett Club and conservation of just getting these animals back on the landscape and fast forward to even the present day we still use hunting as a conservation tactic now you know there's definitely populations that are troubled and we're trying to not hunt them period like you think about moose in the midwest with climate change and all that those populations probably will never be hunted again in the midwest yeah i don't see it with Mm -mm. deer white-tailed deer crossing over with moose populations and i don't see that ever happening so we are smart about what we hunt. And then two, you think about whitetails, period. Whitetails are one of the most hunted big game species in North or in the United States. They are the big, the most hunted. They are, they are. So, I mean, you think about. And there's more of them. There's more of them now than there ever has been. Yes, exactly. In the Midwest, they're thriving out East. They're thriving. Southern populations, maybe not so much, but they're, there, um, there's three three different spectrums there. Thriving populations of whitetails uh, in the upper Midwest, um, in the western states, they're an invasive species. <laughs> really, think about it. Competing with, they're still nice, but they yeah, compete I mean, with some real deer populations. They, and I think they're expanding a little bit in range. They are native to Montana and some other places, but yeah, they are definitely um, they have a competitive advantage over mule deer recently. And kind of, we're getting a little off. I was thinking just how how the populations, how, you know, hunting is used to, um, like help control populations, free meals, free meals. So like, yeah. Um, on the flip side of the coin with the whitetail expansion, you see some mule deer reduction for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And like Ryan was saying, you know, in the area I'm at is right in the center of that. We have a lot more whitetails expanding. Mule deer are not doing that great what's going on. We're having a lot more whitetail tags available and they're restricting the amount of mule deer tags. And in a lot of places only to male buck, you know, male mule deer bucks, um, which goes back to what we're saying. Like a large male deer is the best one to take out of a population. If that population needs to grow. Um, and this can be seen too, with like wild sheep, wild sheep, have a really bad hand with like pneumonia from domestic sheep and they they've got, you know, their numbers have dwindled quite a bit and a lot of places uh, that you can hunt them. There's a curl requirement or a number of uh, ridges on their horns. So you can, you have to be able to tell that these rams you're harvesting are like, it depends on where you're at, like seven, eight years old, or they have a full curl because that represents about that age of a, a ram. And so you might say, oh, someone went out, you know, someone went out and was trophy hunting for this big horn just to shoot this huge ram. It's like, no, actually, that's the only ram legally allowed to be taken because that ram is kind of expendable as far as the population goes. Like, if you're going to take one sheep, that's the sheep to be taking, right? So there's a lot in the background of what conservation trophy hunting discussion is, um, but let's talk to you a little bit more about personal stuff. Like, uh, why, Ryan, why personally would you want to, uh, chase a bigger animal? Like just take white tails, for example, why is like a big 10 point white tail, you know, four and a half, five and a half year old deer. Why is that what you want to go after? 
I think, you know, it's the thing of trying to test your hunting ability and challenging yourself. There, there's not a lot of them on the landscape and they're smarter creatures. You know, they, they, that smarter animal is pushed into these areas that are sometimes tougher to get to. And it's not so much a challenge for the animal as it's challenging yourself to get into these areas and things like that. It's, it's, it's hard to do casting a small net for like a specific kind of animal than a a wide net for multiple animals, but it's a physical mental challenge. It's it's just a challenge to do so. And do you think, um, so is it, is it more difficult to kill that kind of a deer than, uh, you know, little six point that's a year and a half old? Yeah. Like I said, I mean, whatever the, the makeup of the population, there's only a few percent of deer that are four to five year old that are in that, that cohort. And that's the one thing too. It's not so much we're going after a trophy as we're going over an older age class deer. I, I don't really care how big the antlers are. If I see a deer that's four or five years old or something like has hit that peak maturity sexually, he's going downhill. He's a smart, wise, savvy buck. He's got a good story to tell. He's like, he's the deer I want to try to chase. And, and you're probably going to learn. You're probably going to learn a lot more about white-tailed deer in general because you need to specifically learn about an individual deer, their habits, where they eat, where they bed, these kind of things. And then also, like you're saying, because there's so much fewer of them, how much more time do you spend in the woods? And just going to say, you would, I'm like, you know? I, you know, you could go out there, shoot the first deer you, you see and take it home if you don't have time. But luckily I'm fortunate with some time supportive, uh, fiance that it's like, I want to be out there as much as possible. And that's one thing that, that lets me do that is going after specific target animals. So, I mean, we're definitely not by any means trying to say like, you should only be going after large deer. If you're going out there to hunt, have an experience to get food, like go and do what's you know legal and what's good for conservation and what you want to do you know um but like you're saying like hunting a specific age class a specific type of animal even if you're like i'm gonna only hunt animals in this area of the state because i want to have an experience with the driftless zone or i want to have an experience with this mountain range in montana like i have done that multiple times where it's like i want to hunt an animal on that mountain and then you're kind of like having an experience to learn what the deer on that mountain do. And all of a sudden you get to learn so much more about the species and how it differs across the landscape, things that are the same, all kinds of stuff. Instead of just like you you said, going out for one day and killing the first thing to fill your freezer, you don't really learn as much. You don't have as much time and experience there. Um, So we started just being in, in nature itself, you know, hunting, Hunting luckily brings you into those spots where you can enjoy you having a fascination of a specific area or something. Who cares if you don't see anything? Hopefully you're learning and seeing different animals. Um, hunting that one species might educate you on what blue jays are, or like, you know, things like oh, yeah. that. Of the whole, whole circle of life of how you're going after one creature, but how everything is so connected and you build a bit better respect for nature and, you know, climate change and all this stuff that's going on because you're, you're bigger than just a hunter. It's the whole, whole circle of life that you're part of. You're fitting yeah. your niche, what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. So we, just to wrap up, what we've gone over so far. We like hit on the points of like what people think trophy hunting is. And we kind of said like, okay, the, don't eat the meat. That's not true. Um, 
it's going to hurt the animal population. That's not true. So those are like conservation and utility of it. And then we just went into a little bit of like personal experience. Like, okay, now like it's okay to hunt this animal because I'm eating it. It's okay to hunt this animal because it's good for conservation. Why would I personally want to do it? Spend more time in the field, challenge yourself, do these other things to learn about the animal. And that kind of gets into what we're kind of going to go into next, which is trying to draw some parallels and analogy between trophies and hunting and trophies in the running sphere. And this could be a little bit of a stretch, but I think it actually kind of goes along well together. And the reason that I want to go this route is because like Ryan was saying, a lot of people might be exposed to hunting. Like you, you're a relative of someone who hunts, you've eaten wild game. You see animals out in the woods when you're on a hike or something, but um, you don't really know the perspective of why would someone want to go after a big buck specifically? Why would someone want to do this or that? Uh, and it's hard to describe, but maybe if we talk about running, which is something that people, it's easy to conceptualize and a lot of people engage in running for various reasons. Um, it might be able to paint a better picture of where we're coming from. And let me be specific. This is where Ryan and I and other people we hunt with are coming from. I don't want to delve into like, you know, speculating on what other people might think because there's a lot of different things out there. And I think it's safest just to give our example and what we believe is important, but we were both runners too, competitively NCAA and we know running pretty well. Um, and we know hunting very well. And so that might be a little bit of a bridge between people who have really minimal or no experience with hunting about what is this trophy hunting kind of thing? Like why, like this doesn't make sense to me. Like why would anybody want to do that? Well, let's put it in running terms. Um, obviously the biggest difference here is that in a running race, you're generally not killing and eating something. <laughs> so you're, that's you're like a very, your muscle fibers. And your yeah. Mind. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's a big difference that it, there's no way to say it besides that's different. Um, but I think most people in America are okay with people hunting for meat. They're okay with people going out and shooting a deer and eating it throughout the rest of the year. Um, so if you're not okay with that, then turn off this podcast. I'd be surprised if you made it this far already anyways. Um, because <laughs> We're, we're not trying to argue about if it's okay to eat animals. I think it's obvious. We all agree on this yeah. podcast that it is okay to kill and eat animals, how you do it, when you do it, that matters. Um, and so the next step here, we're going to try to get into some, uh, some little parallels between running and hunting and kind of the trophy and what that really is. So let's briefly go over it, Ryan, right now. Maybe you can hit on some points that are like similarities of why you might hunt and run. And then we're going to go into a couple of stories that are uh, a hunting story. And then one of our running stories that are kind of similar in how we look at them. I think a big thing, like getting into, um, running of how I started running and how I started hunting was just kind of a cultural thing. I grew up with sisters that were good athletes and also a family that was big hunter, you know? And so I guess that's why I started running and also hunting was just kind of a cultural thing and started running at a young age and, and then took it farther and kind of got bit by the bug when it came to running. And also the same thing with hunting is I got bit by the bug and is has been doing it for 18 years same with running we ran through high school collegiately me and you together um and then both of us run today for the reasons of health 
and, you know, mental health, physical health, um, just something fun to do socially with others. And it's all the same reasons why we hunt is it, it's so good for your mind mentally, just like running. It's challenging. You're climbing a hill or a mountain or something like that. You're out there in the elements, which is so good for you. You know, you hear all these things about health and these cold shock proteins and all this stuff that helps your body, like uncomfortable stuff helps your body of breaking down fat and all this stuff. And that's what hunting and running does, you know, and then physical yeah. health. It's just climbing a hill and making your legs stronger and things, you know, they said a thing we're 30 years old now, 31. It's like people past their thirties, 95% of people will not ever sprint again or lift heavy weights or be in uncomfortable situations. And it's like when it came to weather and stuff, it's like hunting does all that running does all that. It's like, th those are a great parallel of why we hunt and run. And yeah. why we I think another, Today. I think another thing too is, um, for me experiencing new places, which might be similar to why other people run is like, you know, you, you drive down a, a highway or you drive down this, the back roads and you get, you know, you fly through there in your car, you're just getting A to B. And then all of a sudden, if you start running and training and you're like, Oh, what if I ran that route? And you start to notice all these things about these areas that you don't notice when you're driving through in a car, or if you run trails, like, you know, as hunters, I actually, that's a, that's a part of running that really opens my eyes. Cause as hunters, we generally go off trail into these other areas. And sometimes yeah. I'm kind of pleasantly surprised. Cause I kind of like poo poo trails, you know, all a bunch of people there or whatever. But if I go on a jog and I jog a trail, I'm like, wow, this is actually really scenic. And then sometimes you even find something that's a good hunting tidbit when you're on a trail, you know? Um, so it takes you to new places. You know, you, you always see people going, traveling to races in like Arizona or the Boston marathon or even internationally. Right. And it's just like a vessel for you to go and experience a place in this, you know, this mindset of running. And it's kind of the same thing with hunting. It's like, I was talking about earlier. What if I went on that mountain to hunt a deer? It might not be the best place to do it. It might not have the biggest deer, but like, I'm going to learn something about that mountain. Same with running. It's like, what if I ran in the desert? Well, I might learn how hot and uh, dry it is, or I might learn this and that about, <laughs> you know, looking out for a cactus or whatever, you know, the simplifying it, but experiencing new things. And then, like you said, overall health, socially, mentally, um, and then, but then we get into what we're talking about is there's also competitive running, right? And that's also something a lot of people do. Um, and so we're going to kind of try to compare that aspect with the hunting aspect uh we've got some stories set up here uh pre-recorded we've never done this before actually this um, is new yeah yeah so we've got a set of stories from each of us we try to keep them short and they're going to go over uh three three hunting stories from each of us that we were recorded and then live we're going to tell kind of the running side of the coin a, a race that we had that kind of had the same elements as that hunt to kind of paint a picture of how similar they really are. So um, we're going to roll into that right now. And I haven't heard Ryan's stories yet, and he hasn't heard mine yet. So you're going to get some genuine reactions here. And then we're going to break down some races and the components between the hunt and the race that might be the same. Or maybe even different, too. So um, should we go into that now, Ryan? So yeah, we'll, we'll break it down. Um, first buck, our first animal of some sort of a first situation uh, our biggest situation and our best situation so 
Should I start with my first elk in Utah? That sounds like a great place to start. I love elk stories. All right, here we go. Growing up in the Midwest, the closest I got to hearing an elk bugle was on the Outdoor Channel. After living in Utah for three years, I finally thought of getting a second chance at the -the over-the-counter archery elk permit in Utah. With this tag, I could go on any limited archery elk unit and harvest a spike or a cow. I wanted to get my feet wet, and I thought this would be the best way to do so. So like any new species and area, I started to study and learn elk behavior and the landscapes they lived and what I would be hunting. Any free time I had, I just went up on the mountain, watched elk, behavior, where would they be, what would they be doing? So the season began. Like every other animal, once season starts, animals scatter. I just kept covering ground, finding only branch-antlered bulls, which was cool, but not a legal animal to take. I was watching their habits, their diet, behavior, what were they doing, trying to learn from these animals to see if I could move this forward and try to harvest a spike or a cow. From these interactions, I found elk didn't like people. They really loved burned, grassy regions. The final key was they loved quiet water sources that they could wallow in, drink in, whatever they wanted to. So I narrowed down most of the unit to a few key areas and headed out to go find these elusive spike and cow elk. I settled in on one of these new spots for an evening glass, watching all these mixed burn slash dark timbered valleys. Perfect for what elk would be in. As I was scanning back and forth, I spotted a cow bedded. As I looked more, I saw a large herd all bedded in the burn. I watched the herd get up and feed, seeing a few spikes, cows, and one large herd bull that was just bugling like crazy. I looked at the map and found one specific secret little area where they could be tucked in, and I wanted to hike there that next evening. The next morning, I went to the same spot, glassed up the area, and found the elk again. But I also found people. And the one person I found, he had a limited bull elk permit and was going to go after that large herd bull that I just spot. So I backed off and proceeded to go with what my plan was in the evening to head up to that secret wallow. So I hiked up to this spot. It was brutal. It was thick regenerative aspen from the burn all the deadfall, and it was a few thousand feet of elevation gain, which made it even worse. As I approached this small little hidey hole of elk, I could smell the elk. This little secret wallow spot was hidden between all this thick aspen and dark timber, and it was just an opening of grass and wetland. It was perfect for big bulls and that big herd to come to during the day. So I hunted this spot for the next few weeks, finding bad weather and also finding a good way in and out of this spot, seeing again 
only branch antlered bulls, but the herd was close. Had a few close encounters with them, but never could get that spike or cow within range. So my plan was, final day, to head up in there, sneak my way into this little elk hidey hole, and sit and see if I could have some elk right in front of me. Using to my knowledge the quietest way to get in there, I moved up in there in the dark, trying to settle up for when the sun rose. But through the darkness, I could hear cow chirps. So I waited till the light came up. This dark light brightened. I could start to see the silhouettes of the elk bedded, roughly about 70 to 100 yards from me. Then as it got even lighter, the herd started to get up out of their beds and start feeding up into that opening. One of the first animals in the opening was this large, tall spike, trophy spike. I ranged the tree in front of him. He was 50, moving off to 60 yards. The spike was right in front of that 60-yard tree. I pulled back my bow put it on him, let it go, (laughs) hit him, he ran off, he ran into the thick timber, and I could just hear him crashing, he tipped over, and it was done, I just shot my first spike elk in Utah, the journey was not over, I had to get this elk out of here, I was through that thicket of aspen, and up a few thousand feet, Luckily, I had to pack this bolt downhill, so I have good friends, and I called my work associates, and they spent the whole day helping me clean that animal and also pack him out. Made a large task a lot easier conquering as a team. So we headed down the mountain the way I knew how, and we made it to the trucks just to enjoy the laughs of the hike, and then also the success that I shared with everybody else. Not a large trophy, but a special one to me and the people that were a part of it. We had that story there, Ryan's first successful elk hunt and talking about how he has these, uh, this spike elk to take home and, and cherish is a, is a somewhat of a trophy, which most people would not say a spike elk is a trophy, but it's all about what you think about it. And what it meant in the hunt. So, uh, Ryan, what what kind of a race situation, going back to running, might you have had that have similar elements to that first elk experience? Yeah, exactly. Um, a race that would totally correlate to that was um, I ran my first ever half marathon in Cedar City, the same exact area unit. I guess I can give that out. It doesn't matter. It's a spike elk, <laughs> but. <laughs> Um, the same exact unit that I shot that bull on, not too far, well, I guess decently far from the road, but, um, so same correlation is like, I wanted to try a new thing. I've never ran a half marathon in my life before. So it's like, let's sign, let's sign up for a half marathon. And, um, the challenge was really, I had no time because I was hunting this elk. It was the same time frame that I had this elk tag. So I had uh, zero, um, running kind of exposure and I just signed up for a half marathon. I'm like, let's see how good hunting um, <laughs> is to um, being in uh, some physical fitness. But um, 
listen to just our last like episode ra- about that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I did. I did very well. Just like I got an elk. I, I mean, I ran that half in an hour seventeen, five fifty six pace. So I was That's pretty impressive. proud of that. I mean, yes. What was the elevation there? Like fifty five, six thousand, yeah, something like five. that. Five. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. So I was happy with that. Just like uh, the race, and just like the race kind of started out, um, I was feeling good. You know, I was running. I, I thought I could run at like five twenty, five thirty pace. So I was hitting like five twenty, five thirty all the way through, all the way till ten miles, and the wheels came off, and I was pretty much walking. But just like that hunt, it was nice because it's it's a longer race. It's a long journey. That whole hunt. I had to spend every day, not every day, but I spent a lot of time out in the woods. I I just loved watching all the elk, the bugle. I was with that herd almost every day. I don't think there was a day that I was on that hill at the end that I'd never heard an elk bugle. They were just bugling like crazy. It was so fun. Just like the race. I met a lot of people. It was fun. It was a long journey. And the one thing too is just like, the hunt, my uh, coworkers in that came and watched me, helped me, kind of showed me how to clean an elk and and all this. And just like the hunt, they came down and watched me run the Cedar City Half Marathon. So it's like you enjoy, it's another social thing that I enjoyed with my work associates hunting. I also um, tied them in and they got to cheer me on and, and see me do pretty good in that. But it was it, there's a big time correlation there. Same spot, same time frame. Um, hunting was my training, and it was it was definitely physically challenging. But it was almost more. I kind of forget about the physically and mentally challenging. It was more enjoyable just being out there, being running, being present on the trail, and enjoying the mountains of Cedar City, Utah, and and hunting yeah. too. And so you have that uh, that spike elk to take home, and you keep that somewhere. I'm assuming. Uh, what what did you get um, from the Cedar City Marathon? What first of all, what what place did you get? I got third. So just like that spike elk that came from the mountain, I actually got a rock that was engraved, a red rock that was nice. engraved Cedar City Half Marathon, third place. So yeah, that's actually really cool. I love running medals or trophies that are like very unique about like where you, you ran that race. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like your spike elk. So that's actually a really good correlation because it's not your typical shiny gold medal, but it's like representative of a a really cool experience in your journey of the region. Yeah. Everything. But yeah, my, this is not my first deer, but this is my first, what I would call decent. My first mature archery buck. It was the fall of 2017. That season I had quite a bit of time to hunt, and up to this point in my archery hunting, I had only been able to kill a couple of deer, and the bucks that I had killed were small, and so I was really looking to up my game a little bit. I was looking to try to hunt a little bit bigger, more mature deer in the area that I grew up hunting. This is in the Northwoods of Wisconsin, which is mostly timbered. There's no ag. It's got pretty poor soils and a lot of pine and aspen. And so they don't grow very big racks, but they are big deer, big bodied deer. So I wanted to go out and I was just looking for an eight pointer, a typical Midwest eight pointer. I hunted this area that my dad's side of the family had been hunting since the early 70s um, on and off. 
and it's down a logging road two miles hike in. The logging road is gated, so there's no vehicle access. There used to be back in the day, but um, recently with the new paper company, they don't allow vehicle access. So this is where I grew up hunting, rifle hunting with my dad, hiking my, two miles back into the woods. And uh, we had killed quite a few deer back there with our rifles during rifle season, but I was archery hunting. And in Wisconsin, the great thing about archery season is that it is in the middle of the deer rut. Rifle season is at the tail end of it, so even though you get to use a gun, uh, the deer are not rutting as much, and they aren't uh, running around quite as quite as crazy as they are in the first and second week of November. So I had been hunting for probably 10 out of 12 days, and I had been hiking back to this spot and having a lot of close calls, but it started to kind of tail off. And I'd always hike in before light and come out after dark. And in my headlamp, while I'm walking down the logging road, about half a mile in, I kept seeing a lot of fresh shine. Some days it would snow a little bit and I saw fresh tracks. Some days it'd be frosty or frozen. You could just make out that deer had been crossing there. But I didn't pay too much attention to it. So my time was running out. Gun season was about to kick in. And when that happens, all bets are off for for archery hunting because there's way more hunters and the tactics are way different so the deer really get killed and pushed around so i only had one day left to hunt before my family was going to come up and gun season was upon us i hiked back to the spot i'd been hiking and on the way in once again i saw these fresh tracks but i stuck to what i knew and i went back and got in my stand and that morning i didn't have any close encounters so I made the decision midday to take down my stand, hike back to that spot where all the tracks were, and follow those tracks to an area where it looked like a good place to set up my tree stand. I went in, followed the tracks, and this is by a big clear cut that was cut two or three years before this. So all the aspen trees were about head height or higher and just really thick stem densities, like a cornfield, like impenetrable, but with young trees. But it also bordered an older aspen stand, and then another area was a uh, spruce swamp. So we had thick brows, we had swamp cover, and we had these aspen stands where I could set up uh, my tree stand. I went in, I found a really fresh scrape that had definitely been worked by a doe or a buck um, in the last day. And I set my stand up on it and just sat and hoped for the best. And about 20 minutes only after setting up my stand at like 1 in the afternoon, a buck emerges from that thick aspen, that regenerating aspen. And I was in a really good setup. He came down the trail. I thought he was going to stop to 25 yards. I had already been drawn. I let the arrow go. It zipped right through his lungs. He ran off, and I couldn't keep sight of him as he disappeared down into the swamp about 100 yards away. But I thought I had made a good hit. I started texting my buddies all excited, waited half an hour, got down out of my stand. Great blood trail led right to the deer, and it was my first decent mainframe buck. It was a 4x4, four four, nothing crazy, probably 12 inches wide, probably would score like an 80-inch deer. But it was a big-bodied deer. That's kind of those 3.5, 4.5-year-olds in the North Woods. They really don't grow big racks, but it was probably a 200-pound-plus deer. So I got to gutting it, and I drug it a half mile, first through the woods, then on the logging road by its right antler, 
and really exerted myself dragging them out, but it felt so good. It was so worth it. I'd hunted really hard and I matured. It was a benchmark that I hit as a deer hunter where I was able to really decide what was the right move to get in on a little bit bigger, a little bit older deer, which there are fewer of and they're a little bit wiser. And to remember that hunt, I have that skull hanging in my bedroom and every time I look at it, I just think of that benchmark, that first really good hunt where I put all the pieces together and really matured as a hunter and as a person. I think that a race that correlates well with that was kind of my breakout race uh, in high school. So our high school had a really competitive cross country team and track team, you know, being, being a runner, you not so much Ryan, cause you're middle distance and stuff. You still train in the off season and cross country, but cross country mm-hmm. runners are in season in the fall and the spring. Cause it's cross country in the fall. And then you run long distance yeah. events and track. So, um, I, I, I had been kind of like, a. uh, slow to start, like a lot of potential high school runner. And my coach is really trying to get me to, you know, dig in and and get that first like leap and bound into being like a pretty competitive runner. Cause I had all the tools. Um, and this was the Carlin Nally invite in Lyle, Illinois. Um, this is actually kind of funny because my other race story from my best race is from North central, which is just a few miles down the road. (laughs) Um, and so I was in the, yeah, I was in the two mile. I was in the two mile at this Carlin Nally invite, and I, I can't remember what the deal was, but it was kind of like a no. There wasn't anything really on the line. Like it wasn't really counting for like conference. It wasn't like it was just a kind of a qualifying meet, right? You you run a time. They have a meet for people to run times and see if you can make a qualifying time. Mm-hmm. And so, being a sophomore in high school. Um, you know, you're just kind of going out there to get more races under your belt and kind of figure things out. Anyways, I had never broken 10 minutes in the two mile before. And, uh, I don't know what it was. I don't know if my coach hyped me up or like was everything was right for some reason this day. And I went out and I broke that by like 18 seconds. Like I, I ran a nine forty two. I think maybe even, no, I think I ran a nine thirty six. So I had never broken 10 before and I ran a 936 two mile, which is a pretty staggering improvement. Um, And it was kind of one of those things where I was in in mentally in the zone. I had done a lot of preparation and work and I had raced quite a few times before, but I really never pushed the envelope. You know, when you get in a race and you go out hard and you kind of get a little mentally nervous, like, can I hold this pace? But then you kind of like at a certain point, you're like, well, yeah, I've done the work and I'm going to try it. And it's kind of more of a mental block at that point, because that was the same thing with that race. It was like, I went out pretty fast. And then halfway through the race, I'm like, I'm not hurting yet. And I'm going to hold on to this and even put the hammer down a little more. And I ended up blowing that, you know, first time that I had above 10 minutes, just completely out of the water. And my coach like was super excited about it. And my team kind of took notice of me as like, you know, a tool in our toolbox for competing, um, and yeah, so that was like my first real breakout race. I got a little ribbon. It was, I don't know what place I think I got like sixth place. So it, well, I didn't even place that high, but that was kind of one of those, uh, races where it all kind of started to come together for me as a runner, kind of similar to that hunt. I had hunted quite a bit, done my fair share of rifle hunting, killed quite a few deer rifle hunting, just started to learn how to bow hunt. And I, I finally got a couple deer killed, but then I never really had, you know, a lot of them seem kind of like luck or, or like we're talking about, if you want to go for a little bit bigger deer, it's going to take a lot more attention to detail. And then that day when I just decided to get out of my comfort zone and just 
go where everything was screaming to me. Like there's deer sign over here. It's the third week of November. Like go where the deer sign is kind of like in that race where it was like, you're out fast, but you've done all the work. Just, just go mm-hmm, for it, trust. you know? And, and it all came together. And so, yeah, I have that skull from that deer and I have, uh, I think up in Tomahawk at the cabin, I still have that ribbon from that race. So you reached the milestone and put yourself out there and just gave it and everything came together. Just like the hunting. Yeah. And then in the future, that hunt and that race gives you confidence and lets you know you can compete or you can hunt at this level. Right. So we're going to talk about your best your biggest, biggest, biggest biggest deer. We all dream of the peak rut in the Midwest where bucks of all sorts are love drunk, trying to find female suitors. My largest buck story was just that it was mid November in central Wisconsin. I was waiting all year for this time to make my move on my target buck. I had one buck that was driving me absolutely crazy and wouldn't settle for anything less but him. I only had a few scattered pictures of this elusive animal, but knew Peacrot was in full swing, and this was my best chance to get this giant Central Sands whitetail in daylight and in bow range. I was analyzing our property and thinking, how would a mature buck check his food source, his does, and for people that were out to kill him. (laughs) Throughout the years, I found a spot that just had that. Cover to food from his bed, the scent advantage, a fresh spot without people being in there, and a hot food source, meaning cut corn. As dusk approached, I could hear faint footsteps walking my way. I reached into my backpack and pulled out my grunt tube. I hit the hopefully deer with a contact grunt. After a little while, I could hear the deer raking his antlers against the trees. I thought to myself, it is a buck and he's not happy right now. So my next calling sequence was a bleat followed by a breeding buck call. Again, the buck proceeded to rake his antlers against the trees next to him. At this point, he hasn't moved far from where I first heard those footsteps. So time for the big guns. If it's a mature deer, he's going to respond to one call and one call only. So I wound up and gave him the old snort wheeze. The deer worked closer. At this point, I could finally see his feet through the trees. He kept working closer and closer. Finally he turned right next to a scrape about 20 yards from me. It was him. I could see those deep fork G2s and that massive rack. I thought the deer gave me enough of a show working my calling sequence into me. But he proceeded to work this scrape that was 20 yards from me. Climbing on his hind legs, sticking his antlers in the trees, high up in the trees, working it like... I am the boss, and I'm not going to be screwed with. The show was wrapping up, and he proceeded to get back on all fours. He took a few more steps my way, making a more of a broadside approach. I drew my bow, put it on him, 
and whack. Deer runs off and not 50 yards from where I shot him. There he was. I finally got to lay my hands on that beautiful central Wisconsin whitetail. Run my hands through his hair and see that giant rack. It was done. My biggest buck. Big, Ryan's biggest buck, the big old yes. Central Sands twelve point. <laughs> I like the I like the heartbeat, man. That was awesome. Yeah, totally. That yeah. that yeah, just like well, let's see a, a race that correlated with that was, I think my sophomore year going into college, I had one goal because my freshman year I kind of fell short for making the nationals team, and I thought I was good enough. I had good enough time to be on the four by four. I thought and to go to nationals, but my goal my sophomore years was I wanted to be an All-American. That's what I want to do. I want to go up to that big stage. And I, I, th- I believe now being a little more mature, having a season I'm under my belt, it's the time to shine. So I ran fast enough through the year to make it to, um, it was Nebraska, um, Lincoln, Nebraska, where it was um, Nationals was held. And so ran good enough to make the distance mentally relay team um, for our, our team and I was running the 800 leg and it was fun. It was a big stage bank track. It was fun and just warming up and, and we started out that race. Perfect. You know, in first place and, um, by Dan Sullivan, heck of a, I don't know, multi all American, whatever, heck a guy. And so got the, got the handoff in the 400 leg, uh, mellow. He ran a good leg too. And then I got it too. And, kept pace and we were in the top one or two, I think at that point and I uh, handed it off and Dennis Ack did a good job of just maintaining kind of position. And we ended up, I think, finishing uh, sixth place and getting all American honors, but it was that one, all that, all that preparation from the year before that we made mistakes, things I've learned that finally put me in that position to hopefully, or I did become an all American and, and uh, I had one goal. And that was becoming all American. And I, I did it that year. Nice. Two, two big stages, two big, big wins there. Um, we'll go into yeah. a similar story I had in Illinois. Um, and then we'll kind of break down another race I had and talk about kind of the biggest in both like hunting and running these kind of like big time trophies. In 2019, I was in grad school in central Illinois and as always, I was looking for places to hunt. I was really excited to hunt in this area, not because there was a lot of public land, because there was hardly any, but Central Illinois grows some of the biggest whitetail bucks in the world. And so I was out on a mission. I wanted to go out, and because I had the opportunity to hunt what are some of the biggest deer in the world, I wanted to wait for a decent one. I wasn't going for a huge monster, but I was going for something that I was going to want to mount a shoulder mount on my wall to have as a good specimen of the species, something that you can look at and be impressed with. Wow, that is a cool animal. That is a big deer, big antlers, beautiful hide. So I went into this hunt, and I was passing up a lot of deer. Uh, I was hunting a public land area in a low river bottom. And it was a little bit different than hunting the Northwoods, more in the fact that there were way more deer. And there were even better bucks by far that you would see, which were younger deer than what a a mature deer in the Northwoods would be. 
So I had been having a lot of encounters. I passed up probably eight to 10 different young bucks that I could have shot in about a week, two week period. And then once again, like in the Wisconsin story, time was winding down before the Illinois shotgun season came upon us. And once again, the woods would be flooded with shotgun hunters and deer would be much harder to hunt. So I was getting a little nervous, but it was also the peak of the rut. And the rattling was working really well. Hitting the antlers together, getting those bucks coming in, curious about who was fighting and who was the dominant buck. The morning that it all came together, there was a light snow the day before, which had thawed a little bit and overnight froze. So everything was really loud and crunchy, and there was a thick frost over everything, and it was sunny out, pretty cold. And I was in a cottonwood tree without much cover, because there aren't very many good trees in a river bottom when there's cottonwoods. And there's goldenrod all in this floodplain. And the deer had really been running through this area, does and bucks, bucks chasing does, does trying to get away from bucks, does feeding, all kinds of action. So once again, I rattled the antlers together. And within a minute, I could hear from across this goldenrod field, probably 200 yards away, just a footsteps of a deer coming in on a thread and I knew this was probably the type of deer I was looking for because of the attitude a lot of these other bucks that I had rattled in had really come in slowly looked around checked the area out because they were younger and they were interested but they didn't want to get their butt kicked by a bigger deer but this deer was coming in coming closer so I had my arrow knocked I had my release on and I could see him coming through this frosty, sunlit goldenrod. And I looked, and sure enough, that's a buck that I'm ready to take. He's a pretty wide rack, well beyond the ears, really good mass at the bases. But I really wasn't paying attention to exactly what kind of antlers he had because I could just tell that's a mature deer. That's what I'm here for. He comes into 25 yards, and he's walking. And I took my shot. And unfortunately, that arrow went right through the guts because if he had been stopped where I was aiming, that arrow would have gone through the lungs. But he was walking and I didn't stop him. And that extra step between when I let the arrow go and it hit made it so that it was back in the guts. The deer jumped, stopped, and walked off. And I could see he was bleeding quite a bit, but I knew it was a bad shot. So I got down out of the stand, went back, got one of my buddies, and we came in four hours later and started to track. And on our track drive, we had found two beds that he had gotten up out of. And we decided, okay, he isn't dead yet. And you don't want to push a, de a wounded deer too much because if the blood stops, then you'll never find him. So we backed out, left it overnight, came in the next day. And sure enough, he was piled up only 30 yards or so from where we decided to back out the day before. The unfortunate part was the coyotes overnight had gotten to the hindquarters, so I, I lost a bit of meat off of them, which was a real heartbreaker. I hate to see that happen, and I hate to see the kind of shot I made really putting an animal through more pain than it needs to. But it was also a really good deer. Nothing super crazy. That area has some really, really large deer. This one was just a good, typical eight-pointer. It was about 18 inches wide, really thick bases. I was elated with it, you know, an archery hunt, got that big buck, and I really was going there to get something that I could shoulder mount and put on the wall, and I accomplished that. 
And every time I look at it, I think about white-tailed deer as a species and how that is a good specimen. That's a really healthy deer. It represents a cool individual animal and it represents a really cool species. And the area it came from has a healthy population of that species because that rack is so big. That's a healthy deer. And so that's what I think about when I look at it. But I also remember the bad shot and the loss of some meat. And so it's kind of bittersweet. It's not all look at this great trophy. It, it reminds me to improve as a hunter from that hunt. So it's a little bit mixed, but every time I look at it, I just think about how cool and how badass white-tailed deer are. Badass. All right, what's your running story to correlate with that? Well, so we're talking about kind of your big wins, right? Um, like, mm. like big stage, just something that's a trophy just because it legitimately is like a trophy. It's something anybody would be proud of. Right. Um, so indoor track season in, uh, college in the Mac at UW Stevens point, we had a meet where I was going (laughs) to, we had a meet where I was going to, uh, run the three K, um, indoors is a 3000 meters and which is 200 meters shorter than what the two mile is. I talked about before, and so the race wasn't like too well stacked, but it was a lot of people that were trying to, you know, qualify for conference. So it was still people that would be conference contenders. So it's still decently competitive. Um, I think I was the only Stevens Point runner in that heat. And we, to add, we we uh, ran in a very stacked col or like a conference college conference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like they yeah. were all one of the, all some of the best athletes in the nation. Yeah. So, um, anyways, it was a three K gun goes off. We go out and, um, especially in indoor, it's really hard for everybody to kind of like merge and like lengthen out along that inside lane. Right. So people are fighting for that position because I mean, honestly, the three K is kind of like a 10 lap race. And then your last eight or six, uh, I forget how many, it's six laps. Um, I can't do math right now. I forget how many laps, but basically a little halfway through the race is when it really shakes out. And the the beginning is kind of just like a preamble. It's like people just holding their position until it breaks loose. So that cutting in is pretty important. And this guy, I'll never forget. There was no space between me and the person in front of me. I was maybe in like third or fourth place. And this guy was like cutting in on me, like trying to like push his way in between us. And I, I, I elbowed him a couple of times pretty hard. I like jabbed him in the ribs and he's like, what the fuck, man? I'm like, dude, there's no room. You're not getting in. And then that kind of really stirred me up and, and him too. And I was like, okay, I, there's no way I can let this guy beat me now. You know, like yeah. I just, I just pulled that move. And, um, and so, yeah, anyways, we were going pretty fast and finally it broke loose with like, you know, half mile to go or so. And I just started really ripping and then I took the lead and I think the last two or three laps I was leading and I started to extend that lead quite a bit. And I think Dan Sullivan uh, started the let's go Ruben chant and the whole like last two laps, wow. the whole Mac is going, let's go Ruben. And, um, and yeah, I ended up winning the race and uh, I think I ran eight fifty one in the three K um, which was my best time to that point qualified for conference and won the shirt that I'm wearing right now. Nice. Yeah. And that was, uh, that was just the first race I'd ever actually won in college. Um, what does that so. shirt say? Is that pointer invitational or what? Yep. 
Nice. The pointer invitational. Yep. <laughs> the meet, and, yeah. Meet, doesn't it like uh meet winner? Does it say it's something on the back? It just says the event 3000 meters. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Right. So, um, so yeah, that was like the first and only collegiate race that I actually won. And it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a slow heat or anything like that for a qualifying race. It was like a legitimate race. And, um, so yeah, I mean, this isn't a trophy, but it's a, a winner's shirt that I keep. And it's kind of similar to that buck, you know, because like we're talking about, we, you know, we talked about our first elk, our first, you know, good deer and how those really meant something from the story and a benchmark. And then the ones we just talked about, I feel like are kind of, um, they, they just are something worth putting up on the wall. It's like, anybody's going to look at that deer. Anybody's going to look at a first place trophy in a like decently competitive race, all American, right? It's like, mm-hmm. even if you didn't win, you got six, you're on the podium for all American. You're going to keep that trophy because it it's legitimately hard to attain big bucks, hard to attain, you know? So that's kind of what those trophies represent. It, it makes it a, a trophy because like a big buck, not everybody can get an all American trophy or a meat winner in a collegiate race. Like not everybody can attain that. And that's, that's the reason why they're, yeah, they're big, you know, big so, stage. So but. we had a personal benchmark trophy. We have just mm-hmm. biggest, best, you know, this is like our best performance. You're on the podium. You got a big buck. Now we're going to talk about best, you know, exactly. we're not- that filling story, that best buck that means the most to you. They're Which all, I think, they all mean a lot, but yeah, but like we're talking about, we're kind of going through different reasons we keep trophies from things. And, um, mm-hmm. the best, oftentimes you'll have people have that, you know, all American trophy or something, you know, up on their dresser or whatever, but then, and you can, you can look at that and you can automatically be like, wow, you know, that's something that's hard to get. That's something to be proud of. But then there might be something else that isn't like to the average person flashy, but to you was like, this is something that means a lot. And oftentimes they have elements of both. Like, um, my best buck, probably yours as well. I would assume it's not necessarily a tiny buck. It's still like a really good deer. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's maybe not our biggest, but it means the most. So let's go into those stories now. Whitetail hunting can be some of the most strategic and fortunate hunting especially when you're on public land during the early season in Minnesota. We all read about these columns of big buck beds, finding these bruisers in the nastiest thickets, watching and spelling all the public land hunters that walk right by. My best buck was doing just that. But this information was not just stumbled upon. It was a few years worth of knowledge that helped me be 20 yards from one of these Minnesota public land bruisers. This story starts off like most, scouting. I mean scouting every waking day, e-scouting and putting boots on the ground, not just aimlessly walking, but really dissecting all the sign. I started to key in on a few pieces of public that had older, larger size structure of deer. I had one of these pieces dissected out to where a lot of the beds were and how the wind was used in those bedding situations and how they could move throughout these landscapes without being shot by other public land hunters. So the previous year I hung a lot of cameras to monitor this piece of public but just came up short and didn't find a lot of time to hunt. 
but I gained a lot of information by just letting those cameras hang throughout the season. What were the local bucks? What bucks did survive? How did they use that public? What time frames did they daylight throughout the season? So fast forward a year, I had a plan in place how I was going to take advantage of this. I found some sheds in the spring. I found more details to the puzzle that I was building. And one detail was a key bed that was right next to this little pinch point that forced everybody to walk through on this piece of public. There was this rock edge that had a good wind advantage off the leeward side that could scent check that specific pinch point that the people were walking through and then also watch it. It was thick. It allowed that wind advantage. It had the sight advantage. And it also was just an overlooked spot. I pocketed this information in my notes. As the season started, deer started to fall into that October lull and move into these locations that provided the best bedding cover. I had one camera in the same spot that I did last year. This Big 8 was a frequent shopper on this camera in 2022. So I checked this camera in early October of 2023, seeing the local Big 8 point on it a lot. But later in the night, on a north to northwest pattern, just like last year, so looking at the map, it highlighted the public access bed that I found earlier in the spring. It was time to shine. My access had to be creative and quiet. I mean, quiet and slow. So I loaded up my saddle. I loaded up my bow. The goal was to get 100 yards from this bed. I slowly poked through the timber, and I found a good tree to set on. I dumped my wind off the edge. I mean, oaks, green fresh and historic data on my side, time to shine. So not 45 minutes into the hunt, I hear some rustling. I pull up my binoculars and look through the timber. There he was. That large sweeping eight-point rack was 100 yards or less and headed my way, feeding on those acorns. He also had a smaller buck with him. The large eight just slowly fed and let the smaller buck lead the way. The small buck ended up moving 15 to 20 yards through my window and out to the field. Now time for this big eight to do the same. He slowly got on the trail the smaller buck did, following the same path headed to my 20 yard window. Just two steps short of the opening, he takes a deep breath and lays down. Now what? The big eight point is bedded 20 yards from me. Wind's still in my favor, even so that I could smell the musk from that deer. Well, now we wait. For the next hour, I had to control my breathing and movement. Otherwise, the deer could hear me. And an hour went by, and I rubbed my knees just ever so slightly against the tree, and he looks my way. The big eight is curious. He slowly gets up out of his bed. I draw. He takes one step. I settle over his vitals and I pull the trigger. Whack! Hearing him run off and crash about 15 minutes later. I track the deer and find him and spend a moment reflecting on the animal and the journey it took to put this all together. 
And I also thought I'd still have a rough pack out ahead of me and wouldn't be done till 11 p.m. So I cleaned the deer up and load by load, I hiked them out. Not wanting the journey to end, simply painful, but also enjoyable. A deer that challenged both my patience, strength, and knowledge, and looking for what's next. The Minnesota buck. Yeah, and I, I think a story that correlates to that goes back to high school. Um, it leads into my junior year. I made it to state, sophomore, junior, and We're senior. talking best buck, not biggest. Oh, sorry, sorry. Best Big, buck. Yeah, best buck. Yep, sorry. But my best, my best achievement, I think the most memorable to me is my high school um, state championship um, team and multiple state championships through the events. And I think junior year it started with, I made it to state in four events, high jump, four by four, four by eight, and the 800 meters. And I ran great in all of those. I jumped great in all this. And just guys set state records in high jump, jumping 6'10". I remember D1 running back like Fred Willis, he jumped 6'8 in a high jump. And I jumped 6'4 and I got like eighth in D3, Division three, the lowest division of of uh, Wisconsin and also ran good in the 800. And it was just, it's a little demoralizing to me, but I also just learned a lot of the competition of like what to do state and, you know, what that high level of uh, competition is about. So just like that, went back, run, ran a lot in preparation for my senior year. And when it came to that big stage, um, I started event by event, you know, one, we won the four by eight. We got first in the four by eight. Next event was the 800 meters. I won the 800 meters and then high jump. High jump was probably the hardest one that I had to stay focused. It was mentally grueling that I got second in that end. And then our four by four, we had to get six to win the state title. And luckily I caught a guy, I was in seventh, caught a guy right at the end and put us in sixth place to uh, win the state title outright. But it was one of those um, things that I had to just say mentally focus the whole time. And all this training I did, preparation as a junior year, that's what fueled this senior year uh, thriving of me at state. Just like that hunt was that year before is what shot that buck that present year. It wasn't really what was happening that year, but that's definitely a good correlation. Stay focused on the prize, just like that buck, big buck, bedded 20 yards. Just stay focused. He's right there. You know, it's so close. It's obtainable. Yeah, that's that's the difference between the biggest buck versus your best buck, in my opinion, is like it, it really is the details of the story leading up to it. And obviously with your biggest buck, it, those details are also great and everything. And you have to accomplish a lot to shoot a really big buck. But um mm-hmm. Your best one is probably the one that's just the most personal to you, right? It means the most to you. So, yeah. I, uh, I guess like like I said at the end of that story, like how painful it was, but I didn't want it to end. Because I remember like in high school, the track, I was exhausted, apostrophe, like nothing left. And I remember just the bus ride home, all my state medals on my on my chest, state trophy. And I just remember looking at it and almost wanting to cry. And that's how like this, my first public land, big whitetail was. And it, I just, oh, I was just so overwhelmed and just thankful. Yeah. And that's the best buck. That's epiphany of that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Of And also running too. The best, you just, 
are overwhelmed how ex- or it's good. Yeah. All the hard work. So I'll have, I have a similar story for my uh, best buck um, and let's just roll into it. But this one's in Montana with a mule deer. All right. Mule deer, Montana. In Montana, there's a mountain that I've been hunting since I moved here in 2020. And this mountain is really rugged. Uh, a typical hunt for me is a, a dawn to dusk day of hiking up 3,000 feet and seven miles through heavily timbered mountainside. And it's a mixture of dirt, pine needles, rock, cliffs, all kinds of things that you would want in a tough mountain hunt. And when I first moved to Montana, I had targeted this mountain because I thought there might be some big mule deer up there, which people didn't necessarily want to put the work in to find. And actually that first year in Montana, I was able to shoot a really nice, and to this day still my biggest mule deer or deer in general, which I also have shoulder mounted just because it's a great, great specimen, a great representation of mule deer. But since then, I'd gone two seasons of hunting up there, passing smaller bucks, waiting for that bigger deer. And the thing about this hunt is that I don't see hardly any deer. For me, like I said, you would spend an entire day hiking your butt off, going up thousands of feet, and you're just still hunting through the woods. You're just stalking slowly because you can only see about 100 or so yards, and you're waiting to catch a glimpse of a deer and hope that you see it before it sees you. And then you also have to hope that it's what you're looking for. So I had mostly hunted the front side of this mountain, and this past year I decided to try to hunt the way more gnarly, steeper side, which you could really only access up a couple of spine ridges that were kind of like sheep hunting. On these, if you had slipped in a few places, you would be falling and getting hurt, for sure. And I was a little bit nervous about packing a deer out if I were to get one because of that reason, but I went up there anyway. There had been a snowstorm a few days before, and so I was trudging through about 8 inches of snow. But it had gotten warm enough where some of the south-facing slopes where there's grass instead of trees had, had burnt off, so there's much less snow. And I slowly walked the ridges on the tree line looking for deer, and I spotted a couple of deer, made a stalk in, and it turned out to just be two does. But I had stalked them because I was thinking there might be a buck nearby since it was early November and they were just about to start rutting. After I saw those two does and stalked in on them, I had some lunch, and I actually was on a cliff face and dropped a little hand warmer pouch off of that cliff on accident, which made me go below the cliff and around lower on the mountain than I was planning on doing. And serendipitously, that put me in the position to be successful, because I was lower on the mountain, And I had stalked around into this south-facing slope where it was a little more open. There's some ponderosa and mostly grass, and it's still snow-covered. And I stopped because I heard a deer screaming across the valley from me about 800 yards away. Apparently, I don't know what, a wolf or a mountain lion was killing this deer, and it was making a whole bunch of racket. and had my attention, but then I looked down, and only 40 yards below me, there's a nice buck just standing there. I couldn't tell if he was concerned with the noise on the other side of the valley or if he had heard my footsteps in the snow, but he was up and he was ready to bolt. So I had no option but to turn without stepping and getting a better stance with my gun, put the crosshairs on him after I looked at his rack and decided that's something I want to shoot, and I pulled the trigger. He disappeared down the slope 
slid 300 feet in the snow down this mountain. It was pretty insane. Snow flying everywhere, this deer sliding down. And I hadn't made an immediately lethal shot, so I actually kind of did the same thing. I skied down this mountain in my boots, half skiing, half running, to catch up to this deer who ended up piling up in the bottom where I finished the job. And I walked up on that deer, and it was similar to the big buck I had shot three years before on that mountain, only it was a little bit more character. And one thing about these deer that I love up in the timber is their their antlers are much darker. They're like a chocolate color compared to the prairie deer. And they also have a darker coat. So this deer had a chocolate rack, a dark unibrow. And the rack was pretty interesting because typically mule deer have two forks that come off uh, a split on the main beam. But this one on the one side actually had the end of the antler had three points coming out, two of them going up perfectly symmetrical like a tuning fork before the end of the main beam and then also the normal fork going up on the backside. So it was an extremely difficult hunt, a little bit of luck to get in on them, but I had known this mountain, I have history with this mountain, and then I had one of the hardest packouts of my life going down this snowy, slippery, steep slope with this deer on my back after I cut it up. And I got back to the truck, drove home, completely exhausted but completely feeling achieved and the experience and the history with that mountain that was why this was a cool hunt and icing on the cake was the great deer with the unique rack and I ate off that deer and I'm still eating off that deer and I took the head and I boiled the skull and cleaned it up really nice and now I have this awesome unique dark chocolate horn skull mount that I look to And to me, that just represents adventure. It represents history with a mountain. It represents the animals that live on that mountain. And it represents that individual animal. And that day, when I went up there with a little bit of knowledge and a lot of gumption and a lot of patience to go through and try to get a deer like that. And it panned out. And so that's my best buck. And I'll always cherish the skull sitting on my dresser from that hunt. I always like the best story, you know, when you achieved, you reached the top of the mountain, the breathe, the sigh of relief. The nice that deer enjoy. was that deer was damn near at the top of that mountain. Exactly. Was, uh, <laughs> I had to hike up. He was um, where Not I actually shot him. Beach. Yeah, where I shot him was actually eighteen hundred feet up in about a mile and a half. Yeah, nice. Um, so yeah, it was pretty steep. Uh, yeah, so that was my best buck, um, and. Some of that kind of correlates with my best race, I would say, um, mostly in the fact that it's a personal experience, right? So I talked about my uh, first good race uh, at the Carlin Nally Invitational in Lyle, Illinois. We're going now just down the road to Naperville in North Central College. So this is kind of similar to my... um, high school race uh i was freshman a freshman in college and once again uh i'd shown a lot of potential but have never really like proved myself yet and uh this is spring track and field season and i was running 5k and it's kind of that freshman year where you're seeing if you're good at 5k steeplechase you know 10k what's your event right um and similar to that two mile where i broke 10 minutes by a lot the first time i broke it I think it was Easter Sunday, not maybe not Sunday. It was Easter weekend, and we were in uh, Wisconsin Rapids actually um, in April. 
And I had never broken 16 minutes in the 5k. And then that race, I ran like a 1538 or something like it was same deal. Just blew, blew the doors off my old personal best. And so then everybody was kind of like, well, okay, Ruben, you know, he's showing some potential. Um, we got this invitational at the very end of, you know, this is actually after semester's over because this is the last qualifying invitational before nationals, right? So this is like one of those last chance meets where people try to run a qualifying time, but there's no like meet structure. There's no points or competition. It's literally just people showing up to try to run in a sanctioned race. So they were like, Ruben, you should try to break, you know, the freshman record for the 5k and everything. And, um, which I think was like 15, 12 or something like that at the time. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. Whatever. Okay. And the the reason that this race was extremely special to me and still my best race on multiple levels. Um, my, my grandpa was diagnosed with cancer actually earlier that spring and like terminally ill. And uh, a couple of weeks before this race, we had had a big kind of like get together for people to kind of spend time with him before he was going to pass because it was, it was evident. Like he was, he barely even made it to the time that we had a party for him and we all knew that it was going to happen soon. So that was the last time I ever saw him at that party. Um, and you know, he had some parting words with me, you know, told me how he loved me and how he, you know, I'm a winner, go, go out and do life and all that. And so the morning of this invitational, I was moving out of the dorms in Stevens Point and I had to drive from Stevens Point, Wisconsin to Naperville, which is about four hours, three, three ish hours and run a race like that evening. Um, and because it was after semester and everybody else had either qualified or wasn't trying to, I was the only person from Stevens Point at this invite. Um, and that morning, my dad had come up to help me move some of my stuff out the dorms, and he brought me the news that morning that my grandpa had died the night before. And so I, you know, kind of didn't know what to do with that. Drove down on my own because we had two different vehicles because we had my stuff from the dorms. And um, I continued on past my hometown of Palatine to the race and warmed up and everything. And my family was coming. Um, you know, my grandpa had just passed. They needed something to do to be together and kind of have their head off of things. So I think it was my mom, my aunt, my grandma and my dad, and maybe a couple of my siblings. And that was, that was it. Um, and so the race was coming up and, uh, yeah, I just kind of like said a little prayer dedicated to my grandpa and gun went off. And I knew that if I was going to try to break 15, which was a really big goal to break 15, I mean, you're smoking if you're breaking 15 and for a freshman, that'd be really, really fast. I'd only run like 1538 or whatever it was before, but I knew to hit 15 sub 15. I just have to click off 72 second quarters, just like, you know, clockwork. And I was in that mental space where it's kind of like you're in an emotional daze, if you will. And you kind of like out of body experience. And all of a sudden I just started clicking off 72, 72, 72. And then I knew a couple, I never really paid attention to who, who was in these fields, like as far as runners go, but I knew a couple of them were like really fast runners and I was still hanging with them by like, you know, halfway, three quarters of the way through the race. And I'm like looking at the time and I'm like, holy crap, like I am actually hitting like 72 on the dot almost every single time. And I start to fall off a little bit, but then like we're coming around the corner and I look at that clock and I'm like, I can, I can break that record and I can get damn close to 15 if I just put it in gear here. 
And I, I never want to have a kick. I'm always a go out hard and die kind of runner. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but I did actually muster up a little bit of strength and, uh, just kind of that change from each quarter. Cause you know, it's 15 laps or whatever. Um, a little bit over 72 adds up and, uh, I put the kick down and I crossed the finish line. I look at the clock and it's 1508. I broke that record by four seconds. Nobody else was there besides my family. And it was a pretty empty stadium, honestly, because it's like a last chance meet. So they knew what I was trying to accomplish with that record. And they knew everything that had gone on, obviously, with my grandpa. And so they just, I could hear them as soon as I crossed the finish line, all screaming and cheering. And it was like the biggest, you know, mm-hmm. most meaningful race. Now, I don't even have anything like a trophy from that race. I think I got like eighth in the heat or something. But like, that is my best race. I performed better than I ever had. I didn't win anything, but it meant so much to me to dedicate that race to someone I loved who just passed away. I have my whole family there and nobody else. And it was, it was almost like it was just team fry out there. You know, I almost didn't Mm -hmm. even feel like I was running for Steven's point. I was just running for my family and that's my hundred percent best race. Um, and so that's kind of similar. I mean, it's a little different from that buck story, but it's, it's similar in the fact that, you know, it wasn't like the time that I ran, it was the entire experience and what led up to it and, and still performing and being able to accomplish something just kind of like that deer got a relationship with that mountain. A lot of things have happened to me on that mountain and I've kind of had my Zen, like spiritual, you know, by yourself in the wilderness up there. And that represents kind of that feeling and that race represent that feeling of family and belonging and dedicating things to people. So yeah, that was best race. I think that's one thing difference about, well, uh, not difference, but special about hunting and running and all these things is the emotional, like emotional, what you went through. You know, I've heard a lot of stories from hunters that have, have had grandpa, grandfathers or dads or something past. And what do they want to do? Just get out in the woods and find that piece of Zen, you know, the piece of Zen of you being an out of body experience of just grinding all that, just in the race, you're locked in and, I mean, that's something special that I feel like people, when you say like trophy hunting's bad, I mean, like this is an emotional thing. This is our, you know, our lives. And, and I mean, this is a great thing to be a part of is running and hunting, you know? Yeah. And I mean, we should get into now, um, talking. So we just discussed like three different scenarios of why we have like trophies or mementos from a race or a a hunt. And like you just alluded to, sometimes it's not even like with my race, there wasn't even an actual trophy, but it's, you know, I I think the only trophy I would have is about a one minute clip from that race, like on my last lap that we have. Yeah. Um, but so we should go through like when people talk about trophies, like what, what are you even talking about at that point? Right. Um, because what what is an actual trophy? We're talking about big bucks. We're talking about, you know, exotic animals or whatever. But, like, what is a trophy? Yeah, I mean, a trophy to me doesn't even need to be a tangible object, something you're looking at. Just like you're explaining, it could just be a feeling you experienced. It's, it's something in your mind already, something you're never going to forget. And as it pertains to like taxidermy i don't want to get too uh ahead of ourselves or something but like taxidermy or a trophy it's something that you can look at that animal or that trophy and it'll put you back into that space where you were that thing you achieved you achieved you test yourself in xyz 
and you uh, feel some sort of um, achievement off of that. And one thing too, I think about like trophy hunting is you don't, you don't see how much respect we do give these animals. I mean, it, it might be a little weird and freaky that we put a deer's head or a skull or something on the wall. But I mean, if it was me, if someone shot me or something and we we're playing this game and put my head on the wall, that's good. Because each time we see those animals, we, we don't forget them. Once we put them away, we forget them. And that's not, that's just like, you know, losing something special. It's like, we're going to remember those the rest of our lives. They're going to be a story in us and we can pass those down to generation to generation. So those animals are always living. Yeah. It's just like a physical memento that like represents a journey or an accomplishment or a time in history Mm -hmm. that's personal, you know? And when you get down to it, like, you know, it represents something to an individual person. We're talking about big bucks. We're talking about all American. And yeah, you can look at those and like have a little bit removed idea of like, Oh, that was hard to get. So that means something. But then there's other ones that are smaller bucks or whatever that maybe even mean more than the big one. And when you get down to it, a trophy of what it like really means, it's completely 100% or subjective. I mean, you can't tell me what that deer means to me. You, you can't tell me what that trophy from that race means to me or the lack of the trophy in the race story I just shared. So I think that's a really important point. We're going to hit home a little more right when we wrap this up. But I think people really need to understand that like when you try to um, define something as trophy hunting, we make laws and rules based on objective things that you can measure you can't really measure a trophy because they're they're what it means to the person or the people that are involved. And that changes person to person. So let's talk about what the animal trophies mean to us besides what we already did talk about as far as like accomplishment um, and, and personal journey. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about like what they mean as far as where they came from, what they are. And what, what we think about just, uh, besides the story behind it every day that we look at them. Um, for example, if I talked about that mule deer, I would immediately start talking about high country timbered mountains and like the type of terrain that they live in and the lower deer numbers that exist there and what they eat and like kind of maybe some of the conservation issues that they have. So like every time I look at that skull or the other deer from that mountain, I have shoulder mounted, you're thinking about like, Oh wow, that's a mule deer what does that mean? Are, what, what does that mean to me? What does that mean to the ecosystem? Um, yeah. And, and also the fact that they're just really cool to look at. I mean, what do you think, Ryan? Like why, 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 think, why would you keep them otherwise? I think first of all, I mean, we live in a country that we can have the availability to hunt these animals and the amount of them, you know, that's, I think the number one grateful thing to be a part of. And I mean, it's, it's definitely a social sphere, just like running and all that, that we, we all can sit there and admire our trophies and talk with someone else about the trophies. And as it pertains to like a mule deer and elk, that's somewhere we've traveled in the United States. That is a geological region that has these animals that we can share stories of where we've traveled, where those animals have taken us. I mean, I would have never been as many places I have in the United States if it wasn't for hunting and also running, traveling throughout college and all that stuff. Um, so, I mean, 
trophies mean a lot. I'm just grateful that conservation wise and all that, we have these and we can put these on our wall, you know, that's yeah, the and, thing to me. Well, and also like the variety of species, right? I think you, yeah. you kind of alluded to the fact that, um, one part of the things we do, well, the thing we do is, is go and try new areas. So, um, let's once again, reiterate that we hunt for meat and we hunt for conservation. We hunt for time and health and, in the outdoors. Um, just like you would run for health, you would run for community, you would run for personal, you know, achievement, but also we hunt to travel, right? It takes us to new places and, and we have to learn now, you know, you know so much about Minnesota whitetail. You just told the story yeah. about how much you learned about that one big whitetail that you had to learn all these things about. And now what do you know? You know where they live at certain times of the year, you know what they eat, you know, like how they behave, why would I not want to go and do that with a moose or a black bear or a mountain goat? Like once again, the basis is we're going out there to interact with nature and get food to sustain our lives. Like we've chosen that as our lifestyle, just like runners. Like why wouldn't you want to go and race the Boston marathon to see what that's like? It's a new city, a new culture of running a, a higher stage to go to, or Maybe go and do something like the Cedar City Half Marathon, which may be not nearly as competitive, but you're running through incredible mid-elevation Red Rock Mountains and stuff. And now you get to bring home your trophy from there and remember that area and you learn about that, um, you know, geology, the elevation, the runners in that area. So that's something I feel like people also don't understand. It's like, well, why, why would you want to go and hunt like way over there for this quote unquote rare exotic animal, which also I don't really agree with like some of those terms because exotic to us, but if there's, if we're hunting it, at least if you and I are hunting it, there's a con there's yeah. a, there's a stable population and we're going to eat it. And I don't know why exotic really means anything to it. It's like, we're going to a new area to learn about a new species in that landscape. And we're going to go and we're going to hunt it and we're going to eat it. And we're going to obviously, keep part of it to look at just like you would keep your Cedar city half marathon trophy. And it reminds you of high desert running, right? Mm -hmm. Go hunt a mountain goat. It reminds you of a crazy Alpine hunting experience. And, you know, so I, I, that's another aspect of it. That's similar to hunting is hunting or running hunting takes you places. And so yeah. like, even I would go as far to say that if there was, if there was conservation wise, uh, a legitimate reason to hunt an animal and I'm, I'm interested in eating that animal, I would hunt pretty much any animal in the damn world. <laughs> like I want to go and learn about like Marco Polo's sheep in Tajikistan and about how those people, um, treat that animal and conserve it and use it. I want to go and uh, maybe Africa and hunt uh, kudu and same thing. It's like you don't you don't only really learn about the animal and the landscape. You learn about the people too who use and live with that animal. So the exotic thing with trophy hunting is kind of weird to me too because um, if you're gonna start saying all these things about hunters once again who are eating the meat and who are hunting stable populations. Then like, why aren't you question like, like, why is there no conversation about like running trophies? I guess like you're a trophy runner. Like you just run because you're trying to be better than everybody else or win, you know, prize money or whatever. Nobody cares about that. Mm -hmm. And once again, like the big difference is you're killing something, but like under those kind of like 
stipulations that you are eating it and you're being respectful to the animal and it's stable populations that you can hunt. Like, I don't see a difference there. Do you? No, I don't see either. I mean, you think about it, run, there's running lifestyle. <laughs> like that's your lifestyle is eat, run, travel, all this stuff due to hunting. And same with hunting. Like that's our lifestyle. That's all we eat, breathe, you know, breathe. That's mm-hmm. how we sustain our life is, is these animals. And we're grateful for it. Just like running. I'm yeah. healthy, skinny, hopefully healthy. I don't know, but do yeah. running. Yeah. And, um, and like, so if you walked into my apartment, you'd see mule deer, whitetail. I have a bear rug. I have turkey fans. I have different types of fish. And, um, you know, to, to someone who doesn't know anything about the stories behind it, as far as personal story, as far as the conservation status of that animal, as far as all of the awesome meals that I cooked with it, that, gave me nutrients for half the year from one deer. Uh, you might, you might be confused and be like, well, why do you have all these on display? And why do you, why do you go to so many places just to kill animals? Um, and why, why do you even keep it though? Like a lot of people be like, that's fine that you go and hunt and eat them. But like, why do you have to keep their heads? And we kind of talked about that as it memorializes that species and that individual. It's like, also, it's not just us. It's also on the animal side, which I guess you could say about running a little bit, if you have like a, a race for a donation or charity or something, like it also means something about the effort people put forth to raise money for cancer research or something like that. But it's the same thing with deer. It's like, it represents the effort we put forth and just the existence of that species. Like I'm not just talking about how I went out and killed that deer. I'm also talking about how that deer was alive in that landscape and the life it lived and what it represents to the rest of that ecosystem. Yeah. Beautiful and, too. Like the, the physiological features that deer you could see on the wall and talk to everybody and it's like oh deer have how many ever uh, more olfactory lobes or something than or less or something than xyz and yeah it's almost like if you had an arrangement of metals from races you ran like you might think that cedar city one is the coolest one when maybe maybe your all-american medal means more as far as what happened there but just to look at on your shelf you're like that's a cool slab of red rock with the cedar city like engraved in it and stuff Mm -hmm. i mean that's the same thing for me with animals because you know people would be like well why don't you save all the does that you shoot or whatever and they're just like you know i get it kind of but also like an antler is just freaking cool it's the fastest growing tissue on the planet earth it starts yeah. out in velvet, nervous, like circulatory system becomes hardened calcium used to fight for breeding rights. Like how badass is that? Like, I just like antlers, you know, yeah. like things are cool to look at. A bear's hide is like super soft, you know, beautiful colors, like protects it, keeps it warm. And why, like, why would you not want to keep something like that? Whereas Ryan and I have discussed, and we kind of tried to illustrate with some of our own stories between running and hunting. Trophy hunting, we feel like is, at least to us, the way we do it, like very misunderstood to the general public. Um, it's completely subjective. I think that's the main point I want to get across. If, if there's nothing else people take home from this conversation, I want to I point out that trophy hunting is completely subjective because we established that we eat it. And it's also legally required to eat it. So most people, 97%, according to that survey, eat everything they kill. Okay, check that off the list. They're stable populations. And in fact, because we're hunting older deer, which tend to be bigger, that actually perpetuates their stability 
um, in a lot of instances. Sometimes you do need to kill more deer because there's too many of them. But like, as far as mm-hmm. being worried that killing big deer is going to lower deer numbers, that's not really a thing. Um, so we have conservation and food and ethics is all kind of like the background. And then from there, it's the story that we have and what we want to aspire to as hunters, kind of like running. It's like, we run for health. We run for community. We run for some type of structure and to see the world and to do different things. And then what you take from it from there is completely personal. I don't think you can really make rules past that. So um, people can talk about trophy hunting, but in the United States for the vast majority of areas and animals, uh, no matter why somebody shoots them. I mean, we're not out here to say nobody is a bad apple and is going out there for the wrong reasons and is just kind of bloodthirsty wants to show off on Instagram, a big buck they killed. Like, I mean, we're not saying that doesn't exist, but if you're trying to say, um, well, first of all, I think it's less of a, like, it's not as, as big of a problem as people think as far as actual conservation goes, it is really distasteful to look at, but as far as the laws we have go, there's no way to tell if I killed that deer because of bad reasons or good reasons. And then once again, the reasons are honestly up to you to decide if they're good or bad, which is, you know, subjective in its own right. So as long as there's, uh, you know, sustainable populations, good conservation, and these animals are getting used to feed people, uh, trophy hunting is pretty much irrelevant in my opinion. What do do you think, Ryan? I agree. Trophy hunting to me, meaning like now this whole thing we're talking about, just your life, you know, this is, uh, like we've said multiple times through this whole entire podcast, it's, it's the emotional connection between you, the land, uh, everything. And, and, uh, that couldn't be explained any, anymore. You know, it's, it's something we're very passionate about. It's made me, it's changed me who I am running wise too, has done the same thing. And, and it's, all for those trophies, just testing you benchmarks along the way of each way, how, how to be a better person, how to be more healthy, more in, in tune with nature. And I don't know, tro- yeah. trophy hunting to me is explained a different way than what most people understand it as. Yeah, it's not the reason we hunt isn't for the trophies, but the trophies represent the reason we hunt. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So hopefully this was like kind of insightful to people who've never really been uh, talking too much to hunters about this conversation, because number one, I think a lot of people maybe don't really know how to explain it very well. Cause it is difficult to explain. It's really complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope we did a little bit better job than that. than maybe some other people would think of, but um, if you don't know why, like you should ask people why they do what they do. Like, I, I don't think that, it's at all out of line to ask why, why did you go on that hunt? I ask people that all the time. And normally, you know, people aren't taken off guard cause they know I'm asking as a hunter, but still I'm like, I'm asking the question like, Oh yeah. Why did you decide to go and hunt that species this year? Or why did you go to that area? And it's not like aggressive. It's really curious. And then, you know, sometimes I get a response that I think isn't a very good response. And then I might have a little more conversation or not, but always keep an open mind and talk to people about these things. Cause you know, sometimes I know people who were really d- turned off when they walk into maybe a gas station or a restaurant and there's a bunch of different types of animal yeah. taxidermy on the wall. And they're like, Oh, this disgusting, this trophy hunting. And 
another comparison with running, maybe think about, maybe think about going into a high school and they have a trophy case with their state championships and their individual runners who, you know, have different records. Any high school you go into, if they have any type of records or trophies, they have them displayed somewhere. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's pretty much describing like the history of, you know, high school athletics at that point, all the different people, the different coaches, the different races through the years. And it's just memorializing all these things that are bigger than the actual trophy. So maybe if you go into a restaurant that has a bunch of different animals on the wall, try to maybe think of it in that light and be like, okay, we just listened to Ryan and Ruben talk about this and maybe in a Wisconsin bar, these, these deer on the wall are actually from people that live in this community who the bar lets them display it. And they represent, you know, this person down the road who started to manage his property for better forest health and and better deer. And he took a really big buck one year, didn't have a place to hang in his house. Now it's in the bar. Right. And it's like, that represents community that represents conservation that represents that buck's life and the person's story who hunted it. And it's just way more complex than I think people give it credit for. Yeah, I agree. Hopefully that hunting and running relationship, you know, helped put that parallel between the both and helped people understand the trophy hunting aspect or hunting in in general, I guess, um, as a whole. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed this episode of the Storied Podcast. Tune in next time to hear more about great stories in the outdoors and some commentary on ethics and methods and all kinds of things from Ryan and I. If you have any questions, send in your questions on our Instagram DM and we'll try to get back to you or even talk about them in the podcast. Until next time, find your trophy.